Take your Bibles, here we go. We have been in a series on a, a culture of offense, and it has been a powerful series, and I know that because of uh, conversations and the talks we've had during the week, uh, emails that have come in. It's really uh, stirred up the pot, and I think in a good way. Uh, a lot of this stuff that has been brewing and festering inside of us, the Lord's kind of bringing it to the surface and forcing some of that. And so uh, last week was a powerful service. If you weren't here, um, I would tell you, just go to the website, download the service, and listen to it again. Uh, Susan shared, and then Krista also shared, and I thought it was a very significant Sunday. And we saw firsthand the devastating effects of failed leadership, right? Both from a father and a husband, and the impact upon a young daughter and then also a wife. And what I want to say is even though they have great testimonies, both Susan and Krista have phenomenal testimonies of how God uh, freed them, led them from woundedness and bitterness to healing and freedom, um, it wasn't easy, right? And uh, in many ways, it's very difficult. And some of you may have had more than a little bit of a struggle as you've tried to let go, uh, as Krista said, of having somebody by the throat. Wasn't that a great phrase? The idea that I've got somebody by the throat and I am not going to let that booger go, right? And they're going to pay. Um, and so as you've processed and wrestled, uh, some of you may have had more than a little bit of a struggle as you have tried to let go. Uh, it may not be releasing as fast or as quickly uh, as you thought. And they may be proving to be much stickier or more stubborn than you anticipated. Um, and there's one key area where this is especially true. And it was touched on last week by Susan and Kristen, and that's the area of failed leadership. Okay? Nowhere are we more wounded, nowhere are we more stung, nowhere are we more uh, dejected and betrayed than when those who are our leaders fail us. Um, it, uh, what happens when a leader fails you? What do you do when a leader makes a decision you don't agree with? Right? That's a, a very real question. Um, what do you do if a leader's attitude changes towards you? At one point you were in a good relationship and then uh, no longer so. Now, let's hope this morning that isn't me, all right? but it could be. What should your attitude be in such circumstances? Well, we're going to take a look at a great one this morning, and he will coach us on how to handle uh, this difficult and uh, often perplexing situation. We're going to look at uh, how David handled working under a bad and deteriorating leader. So let's pray this morning. Father, there's not one of us in this room who haven't been wounded or hurt by a leader in their life. And Father, as we sit before you, recognize it's a pretty tender subject. Uh, this morning could bring up old wounds long forgotten. Uh, it could flush up stuff that hasn't uh, been resolved yet. And that's, although painful, probably from your spirit, because your spirit would know how that would fester and sour us on the inside and how that would keep us from engaging fully either with you or your kingdom or your church. And so as we walk through this, obviously I'm going to need tremendous help in interpreting the information. I'll try to do my part well, Lord. But I ask that you would filter uh, the information I'm handing out specifically uh, for those of us who have unique circumstances and uh, need your help in, in processing and coaching through that. 
Um, may this be a, a good step, and we pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so um, let's talk this morning. Let's start, and we are uh, talking about taking offense when uh, leaders fail me. Now, in David's story, we have a unique situation. Most of us have, as I've said many times, the category, right? We know that if we sin, then we're in the doghouse, right? We're in trouble, and, and we know we should be busted for that. And most of us, uh, you know, uh, punish ourselves very severely and very adequately, uh, sometimes even more than Jesus does for when we've sinned like that. One of the things, though, that we don't have a good category for is when we do the right thing and then things go bad for us. In other words, God asks us to do something and we are actually faithful. We take that step and then we get busted and we're like, what? That whole, hello, that's not how it's supposed to go. Well, actually, if you read in Scripture, there's a lot of places where people did the right thing and then uh, bad stuff happened to them. If you go to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18 in your Bibles, we talked about this story a little bit, and this is the story of when David kills Goliath. He goes out, has an incredible victory, right? Famous story. They come back, and all the women of the villages and towns are coming out, and they're singing this, this refrain, this song, this, um, th- we would call it a ditty, really. Um, and it's, it's this ditty that they sang. Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. It says when Saul heard this, he was really ticked off. Bible language is angry, okay? But ticked off, really offended. It says it galled him, just chafed his hide, right? They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Saul knew he was in trouble. He knew he wasn't walking, and he was ticked. It didn't matter that... David had done it right. What mattered was he was angry that it was going to get taken from him. So rather than keeping his eyes on God, Saul kept his eyes on David. And it says his eye became a jealous eye. And that's not jealous for him, jealous against him. All right? And so um, he was embarrassed. He was humiliated. Uh, and, and, you know, you have to think about this. It's a double catch-22 situation because Saul should have been the one that fought Goliath, right? And David proved it could be done. And Saul, rather than going, man, I should have done that. I didn't do what the Lord told me to do. I should just get right with the Lord. He turns and turns his um, wrath against David. And so he didn't get the hero's welcome he was anticipating. And instead, he's playing second fiddle to the exploits of another. This does not go over well. But he's still the leader and he still has power. He has control and he has clout. How many times, those of us who are older, how many times have you seen a young leader who clearly has God's hand on him, right? Clearly uh, the anointing's on the guy and you watch him get squashed or ousted by an older entrenched leader who's jealous of him. You ever see that happen in a church? Right? Look out, Brooks. Look out, Zach. Look out, Wilson. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) No, but right, we've seen that, Right? It's, it's, it's a deal through no fault of his own. Actually, actually, because of an act of great courage and faith, David winds up in Saul's doghouse. He hadn't done anything wrong. He had done what was commanded, both by the king and by the Lord, and yet he winds up in the doghouse. Worse, it doesn't get any better. 
For roughly the next eight years, David lives within an inch of his life as Saul hunts him uh, down. Now, how David reacts to this whole process is very legendary and very instructive. And it brims with lessons for us on how to trust God and not be consumed by anger and bitterness. So, so let's start with this and we'll walk through it together. So first, where it goes wrong, Saul tries to peg uh, David to a wall. Uh, David played the harp and when an evil spirit would come on Saul, David would play music, it would soothe the king and he would get back in his right mind. But this time, the jealousy has brewed, it's stewed, it's boiled, the toxic concoction has mixed. And so when David's playing, Saul realizes there's a guy who's going to take my place and he grabs a spear and he tries to peg David to the wall. It says, the next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was pro- In other words, he's a madman, right? This is not, gee, I don't like David. He's kind of a poo-poo. I think I'll just stick him to a wall. It wasn't that kind of thing, right? This is, he's a madman. He has lost his mind. He has become literally at this point insane. And it says, Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it saying to himself, I will pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Now, interesting in this whole thing, David's quite a warrior himself. Remember I said, don't be messing with him. He went out against 200 Philistines and took them all down. One guy against 200. Woo! That's a kick butt dude, all right? That's a man's man. That is a warrior's warrior. That is a don't be messing, Jack. All right? So you have to realize in this story that the only reason Saul can get away with acting like the nut job that he is at this point is because David is not uh, taking the offensive on this deal. And it says that David eluded him twice, which tells you something about David because it tells you how incredibly athletic and nimble he was because if you got a guy the size of Saul hurling a spear at you, the odds are really good he's going to peg you. Saul is a warrior's warrior. He's been in many battles. He knows how to huck a spear. And if you're the kind of guy that can juke out of the way when he does that and it slams into the wall twice, that is amazing athleticism. Kind of like Luke Doton, right? I mean, just... Right? Kind of deal. And so he gets away with it. Um, so uh, a couple things here. What, what was the foothold? Think this through. This is a serious point. What was the foothold that allowed this evil spirit? In other words, it says this evil spirit came upon him and it was forceful. So we we would say, well, that's kind of like a demonic thing, right? What was the foothold that gave this uh, spirit entrance into Saul that way? I want to suggest to you it was jealousy, okay? Jealousy uh, can be a raging fire inside the hearts of people. That's why most of, in America, we call them crimes of passion or love triangles, but they are the most vicious kind of murders because it is an absolute all-out retaliation for a perceived offense or wound or hurt. Saul just couldn't let go of the fact that David got more honor him than more honor than him with the Goliath event. And his bitter jealousy left him vulnerable to the influence of the evil spirit. That is a great lesson for us. If we are really embittered, we need to know that we have to let that go because it provides entrance to the wrong spirit. It's not entrance of the Holy Spirit. It can be the entrance of an evil spirit. And when that takes over, then you're no longer in control. Many times what you'll find if you read about these shootings on a national level 
is if they don't kill themselves at the end, often it says that they kind of wake up out of a kind of a trance or a stupor and they aren't really aware of what they even did. That's the kind of power some of this has and we need to be very careful. That's just as alive in our day as it was here 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago actually with David. All right, so uh, it's a good warning there. Here's the key. David did not retaliate. As I said, he certainly could have. He was more than enough. He could have used the same sling he used on Goliath to nail Saul, right? Trust me, he had it on him. And remember the story? He picked up five stones. How many did it take to kill Goliath? One. He still had four in his pouch. If he wanted to, he could have pegged Saul, especially after Saul had thrown the spear because he had no more weapons on him and he was vulnerable. Right? David's a man who killed a, a bear and a lion with his bare hands. Saul would have been no match. And we have to take that into consideration. What that means is often the one who looks more powerful, the leader, is really not the powerful one. It's the person in the role of influence, the person in the role of submission who actually has more power uh, than the leader. Why didn't he do it? Because good or evil, David understood something. Saul was the Lord's anointed and he would not take justice into his own hands. Now, David also didn't just lie down. Uh, David appeals. You can see this. He goes, he flees, he runs, he goes, finds Jonathan and says, what have I done? How have I sinned? What's going on? You know, tell me what your dad has said. He knew an inside route and he took it. And uh, this is wise advice. It's always good to seek wisdom and to seek an appeal in a situation like this. Um, in, just like in David's case, often it doesn't help, but often it's wise to seek it, okay? Because God just may have something you don't know about that would turn um, the way. But the truth is, uh, Jonathan discovers that what David's saying is actually really true. And Jonathan himself has to struggle with anger and bitterness towards his own father to not be gripped by it. David actually ends up having to flee, and he flees uh, to the wilderness. Now, how bad can it get, right? Surely God will rescue us. Surely God will take us out of the fire. Surely we won't have to go through hard things, will we? You know, there's a lot of places in Scripture that says we do. In this particular case, uh, David goes to the house of the priests at Nob, and uh, you can find that story in uh, 1 Samuel 20. Um, but he goes to the priest, uh, and, and Ahimelech, who is his personal friend, comes trembling, goes, why are you here? You know, the king's really upset with you. David says, hey, I've come in peace. I'm on a mission. And he says, do you have any bread? And so he gives him the consecrated bread, and then he gives him Goliath's sword, and then he takes off. And, and this guy named Doeg the Edomite is there, and he sees what's happening, and he goes back. And when Saul is questioning his most loyal men, his most loyal men would not give David up because in their eyes, David was the hero. And Saul was cursing him because they were more loyal to David than they were to him. And, he, and Doeg says, hey, I saw David at the priests of Nob and uh, with Ahimelech. And I saw Ahimelech give him the consecrated bread and I saw him give him the sword of, of Goliath. And, uh, and the king tells his men, I want you to, he brings Ahimelech and the priest to him. He says, what have you done? And, and Ahimelech says, 
David's your most loyal guy. He's fought for you in all these wars. This wasn't the first time you sent him on a mission, nor was it the first time you've sent him to me to seek advice for the mission from the Lord before he goes. I have done nothing that is treacherous or traitorous. I've done nothing um, that is betraying of you. I have done exactly what the loyal servant of a king would do. Steve Mitchell's paraphrase. All right, Read it. It's pretty close. And so Saul says, hey, I I want you to kill him. None of his men would do it. So then he turns to this guy, Doeg the Edomite. He says, you turn and strike down the priest. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. Here's how bad it can get. That day, 85 men who wore the linen ephod were killed. He also put to to the sword Nob, the town of the priest, with its men, women, its children, infants, cattle, donkeys, and sheep. That town got annihilated. Those people got annihilated. Okay? They got wiped out for doing the right thing. Now here's the point on this. They were in good standing before the Lord, and I'll guarantee you that God will make that right in eternity. And it's a good lesson for us. There's no guarantees. You need to be walking with the Lord all the time because you can't control situations like this. This priest did the right thing. There was nothing he could control that could change the circumstances of that. And that's why the Bible says you need to be ready to meet Jesus at any moment. You should be walking every moment. If you're sinning, stop now, repent now. It's a good thing to do because you do not know what tomorrow will bring. God has guaranteed you that he will take care of you. He's guaranteed you he will bring you to eternity. He's guaranteed he'll bring you to heaven and he'll wipe away every tear. He has not guaranteed that all injustice on this level will be taken care of. So if you think you've had it bad, just compare it to Ahimelech and his family and his town. Offenses carry tremendous, tremendous damage. All right? It gets worse for David as well. These were his friends. He lost a bunch of friends that day. But then betrayal. Probably the hardest part about offenses, particularly from leaders, all right? particularly from people who stand in the role I stand in. And uh, you can understand, this is not a fun message for me to give, okay? This is the sword I live with because uh, I may walk through the grocery store and you may be there and I may not see you and you go, that stuck up prude. Didn't even have the courtesy to come over and say hi. Well, I never saw you because I'm looking at my phone trying to figure out how it works first. And second of all, making sure I get the list right so I'm not in trouble with Pam, Okay? I didn't see you, you know. I would have said, hi, you know me. I, I, yeah, you know. But, but it's just a, a tough thing. How do you please this many people? And this is only one service, right? But is it true that leaders also do evil? Yes, we do. And many of you are from other churches where evils happen and through your journey with the Lord have wound up here because wicked, evil things happen with the leaders you were under. First of all, may I just say, I am sorry and I apologize. Shepherds should never be like that. Shepherds should never do that. I can't control all that. I can only control me. But that should probably have never happened. All right? Doesn't mean the Lord won't use it and doesn't mean he won't turn all things to good. But that should have never happened. But in this story, this is the story of uh, Keilah, and Keilah is a town, and the Philistines are raiding it, and David seeks the Lord, and should I go and rescue him? And he goes and rescues this town, saves them from the Philistines. And you would think that town would just be uh, totally 
grateful and like, wow, we're loyal to David. He's rescued us. But what happens is David uh, gets some information. You can see the story up here. It's in Samuel 23. It says, David, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Okay, here's the key point. I have helped them out. <coughs> I have helped them out. Saul's coming. When Saul comes, will they stand with me or are they going to betray me and turn me in? And he says, the Lord says to him, um, the, Saul will come down and will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to my men and Saul? And he says, they will. What good did it do for David to help this town? The dirty rats? To save their own skin, to save their own hide, they'll turn David into Saul so they don't get wiped out by Saul. Well, put yourself in the town's position. What wind do they have there? Either they're wiped out by the Philistines or they're wiped out by Saul. Sorry, David. Right? And there's a lot of places in life where the political positioning of the situation puts you in a no-win position. Any of you in here ever been in a no-win position in a church? No? Wow. Godly people. No, we know better, right? We have been. There's been some terrible things. We've been deeply, deeply wounded and scarred by those things. David was deeply scarred by this betrayal. He went out of his way to do something that should have been lauded and instead becomes a place of betrayal and he again has to flee Saul. In the midst of this, um, he still operates above reproach. This is the incredible and legendary side of David. Somehow in his spirit, he knew that he couldn't take offense or get bitter over this deal. And um, he did pretty good. But have you ever had the place where the person you're ticked at, you're given an opportunity to take them out? Have you ever just licked your chops and went, payback? Yes. Okay. And you're going to get them and you're going to let them have it. And it's even cooler if they don't know it's you getting them, right? You just watch them go down. Oh, I'm so sorry. David is out in the wilderness. Saul's chasing him. They come to some sheep pens and there's a cave there. And it says Saul goes in to relieve himself, okay? I'll leave that to your imagination. You'll have to know if it's number one or number two. But while he's in the midst of relieving himself, David crawls from the back of the cave, cuts off a chunk of the robe. Okay? And to show you how sensitive David's conscience was to this, he was grief-stricken that he did that because to touch the robe of the king was to touch the king. Right? And he was grief-stricken. But um, his men, David's own men said, here it is, baby. God has given you your enemy into your hand and you can deal with him as you wish. Matter of fact, he's in the cave. Nobody will ever know what happened to him. His men will never know why he came out. And this is a banner day. It will become the cave of the dead king and no one will ever come near it. And so they, they said, you know, strike him. Um, and it says this. Uh, Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off the corner of his, Saul's, the king's robe. 
And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand up against him, for he is anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. David literally had to restrain his own men. They said, well, fine, you won't do it. We'll do it. We'll do it for you. We don't care. Glad you have a conscience. We don't. He's out. And David had to, so David's in a total no-win because he's, he's try, Saul's trying to kill him, so he's trying to protect his men from Saul. His men are trying to kill Saul, so he's got to protect Saul from his men. He's gotten a total catch-22, right? And so he's just pinched, and yet he would not let him. Later, he stands outside the cave and says, King, do you recognize this piece of cloth? Whoops. You know whose that might be? Do you recognize that the Lord had put you in my hand and that I've not been in rebellion, I've not been guilty, I have not been uh, fomenting treachery against you? And, and Saul recognizes that he was had and it was by mercy. So he promises to let him go. But then, um, standing on firm conviction, all right, David was operating out of conscience and obedience, but then he has a second chance. This one's even better. It says that the Lord put all of Saul's men into a deep sleep, and David and Abishai, one of the mighty men in Scripture, Abishai, and uh, three brothers, and they're David's uh, posse, and he and Abishai go in, and literally here's a jug and Saul's spear, the very same spear that Saul tried to peg David to the wall with. And David grabs the jug and he takes the spear out of the ground. <coughs> and it says that uh, both Abner, the leader, and the soldiers were lying around him. And then here's what Abishai says. Listen to this. Today God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. I.e., I won't have to. I will do the job once and I will do it well. TKO time. Game over. God has given. And David says what? Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And so then he goes up on a hill again and chides them. Hey guys, why don't you protect your king? And they all wake up like, whoa, what's going on? And David holds up the jug and the spear says, you recognize these? And Saul again realizes for the second time If David had wanted to, if David had wanted to take the kingdom, if David had wanted to usurp him, he had ample opportunity to do it. He didn't do it. Now you would hope that Saul would repent from that. You would hope he turned from that. He never did. The ending of Saul's life is incredibly tragic. But uh, this morning, let's uh, take some lessons from the king, all right? David's the real king. David's the one who was anointed by the Lord. David did not retaliate because... He knew that the Spirit of the Lord was telling him not to. Here's some lessons from the king. Lesson number one, David did not play the victim or cave into self-pity. One of the things I've learned about me, and it's probably true as well, there is no bottom to my level of self-pity. If I want to wallow in self-pity, I can sit there as long and as deep as I want to go, and I have never found bottom yet, and I don't suspect in my lifetime I ever will. Okay, Because self-pity is the, the journey and the path to the pit of hell. And there is no bottom to it. And you can wallow in that and feel sorry for yourself and just, whoa, it's me, right? And I have had stretches in my life where I have belly ached and whined quite well, thank you. I would have matched any of the Israelites in the desert. I don't say that with great pride. I look back now and go, what an idiot. But I have. 
You probably haven't, so you can sit there and feel quite self-righteous, but I have, all right? And one of the things that's absolutely astonishing about David is he does not cave into uh, self-pity or uh, the victim. Boy, and, and is our culture rife with this victim entitlement thing? I mean, everybody's owed everything. Everybody's a victim. Everybody's, and I'm like, well, it's just about, you know, enough to gag on. Where are the people who go, I trust the Lord. Through good or bad, I trust the Lord. And he has been good to me, like we sang this morning. Not all that happens to me will be good. We've got to get over that. In Scripture, there are people who die. When God rescued the nation and, and tore them out of the, or tore Israel out as a nation and took them to Babylon, yes, 150,000 lived, but three and a half million died. All right? It is very possible, it is very possible that in your faith for the Lord, you may have to die someday. And that is actually God's plan and God's will, and he will take you to heaven, and he will bless you, and you'll have a martyr's crown. I'm thinking, gee, if I get a martyr's crown after what I've done, and he does that, I win. That's awesome. That's incredible. Okay? Now, it's much tougher. When I was single, I said, boy, if somebody wanted to put a gun in my head and say, choose Jesus or die, I go, ha, hello, thank you, heaven, here we come. A lot harder now that I have a wife and four kids. But you know what? It needs to be the same whether I have 10 kids. We need to know that the price has to be ultimate. David had that kind of ultimate conviction that I will obey regardless of what happens. And we've gotten way away from that, America. We've gotten away with, uh, we've gotten to the point where I will obey if things turn out good for me, or if God uh, answers my prayer, or if I rub the lamp and I get my three wishes, then I will obey. Well, maybe sometimes, but I'll obey kind of. And we've gotten away from its obedience regardless of what. And we know it. And we watch everybody getting away with it and everybody doing stuff. So we cheat too. And it's like, no, that's not going to work. And you know that's not going to work. And we've got to preach that it doesn't work. You have to be in obedience. David did that. And you can't be in obedience that um, if you're wallowing in self-pity. Now, this does not mean that David wasn't hurt. It doesn't mean he didn't struggle mightily. He did. It was as difficult as it could get. He did more, he, he more than did that, but he kept following the Lord's lead, right? So the idea here is to keep your eyes on the Lord. Uh, second thing, he did not harden into anger, bitterness, or rage. Now, he certainly could have very easily, right? He could have locked in and said, you want to go man-to-man? You want to go toe-to-toe? Dude, I took Goliath out. You're a pipsqueak compared to him. I will smack you down. I am not afraid of you. I will take you out. He could have done that. He could have raged, but he knew there was something toxic. He was, knew there was... Have you ever raged on the inside and knew it was wrong and knew you should have let it go and you didn't? What happened to you? David knew. He knew if he grabbed it, it was poison. He knew it would kill him. And by the grace of God, he didn't grab it. And the same is, is true for us. He lost, look at what happened. He lost his home. He lost a wife, right, Micah, Michael. He lost loyal friends, Ahimelech and Nob. He was a fugitive. He had done nothing wrong. And in spite of the evidence, he was still being persecuted. That's a great recipe for getting bitter. 
The astounding miracle of the born-again life is that when that happens to us and we don't get bitter and we don't cave into self-pity, they know there's something up, there's something wrong. There's something different. Here's the third one. This is a key one. He did not take vengeance into his own hands. I said two times, at least two times that we know of, but at least two really clear times, he could have shish kebab and skewered Saul. I mean, not, not even kind of. You want to pay pin the tail on the donkey? Okay, let's go. We'll get more than the tail. Let's get the whole donkey. All right? And he could have done it. And yet he knew that it was not his place to take out the king. It was not his place to do that. That was God's place. And so he put that in God's hand and he appealed into God's hand. Here's the fourth thing. We've been talking about couples praying together. And by the way, a lot of you come back and said, man, what a difference that's making. It isn't all that's better or all that's changed, but boy, it's making a difference for us. And I want to encourage you couples to continue to pray together, to continue to not give up. This may be the point summer where the schedule goes loopy and you get away from praying. Don't do that. Pray together. Okay? Why? Because David never quit praying. Uh, through the entire process, he trusted God and he prayed. Uh, it says over and over again, if you read those chapters, it says uh, of David, it says that he inquired of the Lord and asked the Lord what his next step should be. Resolving things in prayer before the Lord is the most effective weapon against rage and bitterness that exists. It is the most, and that's why we won't pray, because we don't want to forgive. And if I have to forgive, I'm not praying. Well, that's really good logic especially for Christians and born-again people who've been saved in the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's brilliant. No. We have to keep our eyes on the Lord and we have to keep praying. And in those places where we too are hung up and choked by offenses, we've got to bring it before Him and put it in the Lord's court and not take vengeance ourselves. I don't know if you have, but if you take vengeance yourself, I'll tell you two things for certain about it. Number one, it almost never turns out the way you thought. And number two, it's never as satisfying as you thought it would be. It always ends up worse. No amens? Hmm. Right? Never turns out the way you thought, and it never is as satisfying as you thought it would be. God knows that. We are a people to not take vengeance into our own hands. And then the fifth one, he committed his course to God and trusted God to vindicate him. Trust is not just a word, it's an action. All right? Just like love is not a word, it's an action. If we love the Lord, then we must trust the Lord. Trust is a deep-seated, I believe you are a good leader, God, and I believe in spite of going through difficult or awful things, you are still leading well, and I will trust you. Be it good or be it bad, I will trust you through the process. It's an oft-repeated act that forges a character. Does your vindication come from your own efforts to pay someone back, or do you trust the Lord to vindicate you? That's a million-dollar question right there. Does your vindication come from your own efforts to pay someone back, or do you trust the Lord to vindicate you and to vindicate your cause? Remember what Nate said earlier. I, I quoted Nate in the, this series Remember, he says, what we do with an offense will determine our future. And that is very, very true. Um, if it's any encouragement, it's apparent that David didn't emerge unscathed from all of this himself. Um, although he did 
amazingly well. Um, the episode of Uriah and Bathsheba indicates there were probably some things that the Lord was talking to him, to David, about that he didn't fully enter into or let go of that set him up for the greatest catastrophe of his career. And again, when David did that, when he uh, had an affair with Bathsheba and then had her husband, one of his best buddies, murdered, when he did that, who did that really end up affecting? And I want to suggest to you, like we said before, his children. Why do we need to let go of offenses? Why do we need to let go of bitterness? Why do we need to let go of those things that we are choking others and are choking us? Because it stains our kids. It stains our children. That whole posse that went up there. Ask yourself, how many of them are already stained by the bitterness or offenses of their parents? You want a place for repentance? There's a good place right there. Picture that. That's real. I'm not making that up. Right? The story of how this passes down through his children is beyond tragic. And it will be with us also. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, letting go of our offenses. And I want you to know ahead of time, there's actually going to be a response time um, that I want you to be this week in prayer. We've been talking offenses. What I want you to do this week is I want you to do a mental catalog with the Lord. Who do you have an offense with and who do you have to forgive? Okay? Names. If you've got to put them down on a piece of paper, write them down. Who do you hold an offense against? Who do you got by the throat? Or, as Susan said, who's just giving you crumbs when you want a banquet? Who's really ticking you off because they should be giving you more? And, you, and you've got to resolve it. Who do you got to do that? I've been making my list for four weeks. I still haven't hit the end of it. All right? It's amazing how deep this runs in us when you're really honest and, and go before the Lord on it. I want you to do that this week before the Lord. And uh, we're going to have a response time. So here's the deal. Next week, we're going to have communion together. Right? You may very conveniently say, you know, I think I'm going to be on vacation next week. That's fine. Okay? But we're going to be going in communion next week. And Scripture tells us, do not go into communion without examining yourself. All right? So we're going to examine ourselves this week. We're going to have a chance next week to respond to opportunities. And there's two ways you can respond. You'll be seated just like you are this morning. And if you have an offense that you have to let go of, and you know the Lord's told you to, and you're, uh, you are willing to do that, you're willing to repent of that, or you're at least willing to be willing, right? You know what, Lord? I can't see my way through that, but I'm willing to be willing if you help me. So much of this is process. But somewhere, somehow, sometime, you've got to be able to say, you know what, I agree with you, I will let that go. I will take my hand off the throat. I will be content. You've got to say that somewhere. Because if you never say that, you'll be chewed up all your life. And so that's got to get released because that's what's killing us as a church. That's why there's no joy, that's why there's no life, that's why there's no radiance, because we're stuck inside and we're brooding and we're melancholy and we're caught in self-pity and the joy of the Lord is a nice idea. And we sing a lot of songs, I say they're easy to sing, hard to live. Right? We've got to say, I will stop, I will let that go. And so we're going to have a chance to do that next Sunday. So you can stand where you are before the Lord or we're going to have uh, some lead elders and some lead people in our church who will be down here as couples in both services. And if you've got to just get it off your chest and you've got to come down and say, I've got to ask for prayer on this. I I'm dying. It's killing me. Then you come down. You can come down for prayer. I'm not going to force anything, but we are going to do those two things and they are chances for us to respond. God forbid we sit in our seat. 
This is about the kingdom. This is about eternity. This is about Jesus and what he's done for us. This is not about us, although it's totally about us. Because we're holding on to things we shouldn't be holding on to. I know it. You know it. That's why we're so dadgum quiet during this series. The Holy Spirit has pegged something that is really deep in us, and we've got to let Jesus root it out. Make sense? Amen? Amen. Okay, so we'll be back here next week, and probably we should pray. Let's pray. Father, as we've walked through this, um, what we're trying to do, I guess what I'm trying to do is break up the fallow ground to help people see a way through, to help people, my friends, um, who we gather together, and you've drawn us together as the, the Northview family here in Mill Creek, and we want to make an impact and difference. And we said, boy, Lord, if you'd reach out in the community, and, he sa- and you said to us, good, can I start with you? And we said, oh, Lord, no, no, you don't understand. We're the ones who love you. Start with them. And you've come back and said, yes, I know. Can I start with you? And so I guess this morning, this week, Lord, we're going to have to face the question of, can you start with us? Will we cooperate with you in this issue of holding offense and grudges and bitterness, anger, resentment, all those things that um, it's against our wives, it's against our husbands, it's against our children, it's against our neighbors, it's against our bosses. Uh, there is no amount of lack of shortage of fuel for this kind of fire in our culture. And the fire's burning us up, Lord, and we ask that you would replace it with a different kind of fire, the fire from your heart, the fire from your spirit, that's a cleansing fire, that's a fire that lets go, that's a fire that can take the hand off the throat or be content with the crumbs because what you give we will say thank you for. Father, as we go this week, there's some work that needs to be done. May you have a great conversation with us as we do that. We pray you'll be pleased as children that we respond the right way. And we ask this in your name. Amen.